and we forget that we are just passing through, that these things are temporal, they're not eternal, and they really, really don't matter. And I've heard people say before that, the, uh, that we're not taking anything with us when we leave this earth. We know that um, the pharaohs that they tried, and that stuff is still there. It's in the tombs. So we need to really, really get a grip that, um, that this is just some place that we're passing through. But again, prior to my salvation experience to reading the Word of God, I had no idea what truly was my home. And then, knowing now what I didn't know then, I can put into words um, some of the reasons why we can't make it back home or we can't get home. Because as a young teenager, um, I know that I didn't know how to get home, meaning to heaven. I didn't know how to get there. I had no clue. Uh, I was being told something, but the way that I was being told wasn't the way to get to heaven. Because we know that the Word of God says that there's but one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And, and actually, uh, at that point in time in my life, my young life, I was being trained in a way, I was being taught in a way, I was being educated in a way, but it just so happened that it wasn't the right way. That it was more about uh, doctrine, if I may say so, than it was about Jesus Christ. It was more about the church than it was about the Word of God. Actually, we were discouraged to read of the Word of God. So, when I say, what is, that, uh, what is it that makes it difficult to find our way back home? What is it that makes it difficult to find our way back home? I listed three things. Number one, I put the rebellion of the human heart. And we know that Scripture tells us that the heart is desperate, desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. So, it is, um, when we think about our heart... And what is in our heart, and we think about the word rebellion, and, and it's, it's so funny because when you see little munchkins, little kids, you can see the rebellion rise up in them, and no one's teaching them the rebellion. It's not like we're having an educational class in our home when our children were little saying, okay, this is how you rebel. This is how you rebel against me, against your mother. This is how you rebel against those that are around you? No. It comes naturally. So we could sit here, we could sit there, and honestly say that rebellion is truly in the human heart. Amen? And not only rebellion, but rebellion against God's word. And it's proven in Scripture because Scripture talks about how our heart is divided. Paul talks about the things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, I do. And he goes on to say, oh, who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to say, I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior. So it's Jesus Christ that makes the difference in that human heart. Scripture goes on to talk about our righteousness. We know that righteousness is as filthy rags. So... Even when we kind of conjure up all these, um, these excuses about the human heart, we just can't do it. 
We can't do it when we put it up against the word of God. Amen? We just can't do it. The second thing I wrote down was we don't know the way. As a young person, as a young teenager, I didn't know the way. Even as a young adult, I didn't know the way. And then what happens is you start uh, possibly running into people that they want to start sharing this way, this particular direction to get home, to get to heaven. And when that starts taking place, you know, in your mind and in your heart, you start questioning or you start reasoning things out. You start saying in your mind, what if I'm wrong and Bruce happens to be right? And I know many times in our household we would have not necessarily a conversation, just make statements. Many times Bruce, being the outspoken individual that he is, would say things and I'd be like, where does he get off? Who does he think he is? Why does he think he knows the way? Why does he think he has it? And it's not just Bruce, it would be any people, anyone that would want to share their faith, share Jesus Christ. I remember as a young person walking into different restrooms and I'd find those, what? And I'd throw it down really quick like. I'd read just a little bit of it, but I'd throw it down. It'd be a track. Or you'd find it somewhere. What that was was someone wanting to share directions, Amen. Share away. And what happens is, you have two things going on. Number one, you have that rebellion of the human heart. And then number two, we just don't know the way. But then what happens is, somebody starts showing the way, and then the rebellion of the heart is working against the way that the person's showing. Amen? Ever been there? And then the third thing that I wrote down was we have to decide what is important. We have to decide what is important in our lives. And many times we can say that it's an age thing. That, oh, once a person reaches a certain age, they just have all this discernment. And they have all this knowledge and they have a wealth of knowledge. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes we can think um, uh, something will happen in your life and all of a sudden you're faced with what was important to you. Amen? And when I say that, when I read the, the third thing that I wrote down, we have to decide what is important to us in our lives. I think back on my life and I think about prior to my salvation, and I don't want to use the word experience, but my salvation my salvation period okay what took place inside of me because it wasn't an experience because see some people will experience god but not have a salvation in jesus christ agreed it's a fact so when i think back about that even when my father passed away and i knew that he was saved i knew that he went to heaven to be with uh, Jesus. I remember that word experience. People saying, uh, well, some people thinking that I might have had a life change. But no, what, I had, what had happened in my life 
was I had experienced through other people a salvation that took place in my father that had an impact on me. Maybe you've had that happen to you in life. It impacted your life. It didn't necessarily change your life. Jesus didn't become the Lord of your life. You didn't let him into your heart. And so when that happens, there's a time period that takes place that all of a sudden that experience is gone. It's gone. It's no longer real because it wasn't real to begin with. Because you didn't live it. You watched it, you saw it, but you didn't live it. It didn't happen to you. And so when I think back about that, I start thinking about all the things that took place. And I, I can go on, and I'm sure we all can, on and on and on and on and on about salvation experiences or about experiences in your life leading to Christ, leading to God before you got saved. And I know that I've heard my son Chase talk many times about the times that he spent with Tom, speaking to Tom, talking to Tom, sharing with Tom. And, and probably the, the, the despair and the, you know, thinking, it, getting discouraged. And, and what happened was all the time, what we couldn't see what was going on in the back of the mind of Tom. We didn't know that that rebellion of your human heart was going on. There was a battle taking place. And Tom didn't really know the way, but he was being shown the way by someone and a lot of people, Rod. And then what happened was there came a point in time in Tom's life and my life and your life that we had to make a decision. We had to figure out what is important to us. What is important to us? And I can remember in my life when, you know, men just have this thing about we can do it. We can do anything. We've got this. We're as lost as four o'clock, driving all over the place before GPS, but we've got it. Will you stop and ask them, I've got it. 45 minutes later, we're still driving. I've got it. And the wife's like, no, you don't have it. Or your family's like, no, I don't think you do. But we have it. That's just what men, that's what's in us. And realistically, I didn't have it. I may have put on a good front. Everything looked like it was great. But inside, everything was falling apart. Everything was a mess. Everything was in shambles. And then all of a sudden, I had to decide what was important to me. I was faced with that decision, just like many of you were faced with that decision. What are you going to do with that decision? And so you come to a point in time in your life and you make that decision. I have an article here, or it's a little clip. I want to read this. And yes, I do this a lot when, uh, when preaching the word, or even I read a lot of different articles a lot of different times. I just read articles for business, uh, for spiritual reasons, just reading to see what's going on. So, I come across this article. It says, CNN's website featured an article about Frank Warren, editor of the book, The Secret Lives of Men and Women. It's a post-secret book. After, after a troubled, troubling period in his own life, 
he handed out 3,000 self-addressed stamp postcards to people in the street, asking them to anonymously mail him their secrets. It began as a sort of public art project in 2004. Uh, To his surprise, the cards started pouring in. He's received over 100,000 cards, many of which are works of art in themselves. I bet they are, right? Um, It has led to postsecret.com. Postsecret.com. And there are now many sites like it where you can confess your, listen to this, confess your sins or tell your deepest, darkest secret anonymously. One postcard had an old picture of Santa Claus with two boys on his lap. On the picture were written the words, I wish my sons would contact me. So right away when I'm reading that, you know, we're thinking, right, because we're human. Like I said earlier about looking at the outside, we start thinking, oh, it's probably trash, trash this, trash that. Ah, this guy's saying, I just wish my boys would contact me. Now, if the boys were going to contact their father, and there's an old picture of two boys on Santa Claus' lap, that should be telling you that these boys are probably grown boys now, young men, possible adults, possibly having a family. And this man's pouring his heart out in a way that he knows how because that's what our world does (laughs) to say, I wish my children would contact me. And then another one where a man had taken a picture of his hands praying and written on the picture, I don't know how to go back to God and I want to more than anything else in the world. I don't know how to get back to God, but I want to more than anything else in this world. And he takes a picture of his praying hands. Every day we run into people that want to get back to God. They want to go home. We know the way home. They don't. Both cards were about finding your way back home. That's why I brought this article up. That's why I brought this story up. One from a father's perspective who missed his boys and wanted, to find, wanted them to find their way home, back home to him. And the second one uh, from a lost son who uh, could not find his way back to his heavenly father. He's wanting to go back home to his heavenly father, Abba Father. So what is it that makes it difficult for these people or us or somebody to get their way home or find their way home? As I said earlier, first, I believe it's rebellion of the human heart. We're a rebellious people. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, as Scripture puts it. If we could have interviewed the prodigal son in Jesus' story, um, I'm sure he would have told us these things. I don't like the rules of my house. 
I don't really like answering to my mother or my father. Especially my dad. I don't know about you, gentlemen, but when I was 16, I had the world in my hands, so I thought. And my father's name was Shorty, because he was short. And I was taller than my father, not by a lot, but I was taller than my father. Thicker than my father. There's that time in a young man's life when their body changes to the point that they're more physical and more physically fit normally than their father. Would gentlemen agree to that? I remember a time over there when my son was acting up when he was younger because he was picking on his younger brother to show off for all the youth. And I just helped him into my office. I call it my office. And when I took him into our office... And I decided to talk to him and put him gently up against the wall and talk to him. He flexed his muscle, and I felt his muscle. And it was that point in time I thought, crap. Okay? It was at that point in time when the enemy told him, hit him. And then, as he told me later over here, was... The little angel saying, don't even do that. But over here was the enemy saying, hit him. I told him, you made the best decision of your life that day when you didn't hit me. Okay? But I believe it was a godly decision that he made that day. It wasn't him because he didn't have it in him. He was listening to the right voice that day. But... The point I'm making there is there is that point in time in your life, in a young man's life or even a young lady's life where they don't like the rules of the house. And what happens is you're constantly doing this with your family and with your parents and with your loved ones. And so what happens is you think you know it all and you've got it all. And so it is, it's a rebellion. It's a rebellion. It's a rebellious heart. Because, see, when I was 21 years old, And I don't know, it wasn't a magic number, but all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, my dad is the smartest person I've ever known. He has so much knowledge. He's unbelievable. And you can't take back everything that you did or said, but that's what you feel in your heart. You're like, oh my gosh. And so the prodigal son, I'm sure, was saying all of that stuff. And then... We go to Jacob, and when we're talking about Jacob, we're talking about Esau, we know that Jacob ended up stealing the birthright from Esau. And if you read that story in Genesis 25 through 26, 27, 28, and you go through all of that, Jacob wanted to get away from his older brother. He just needed to get away from home and have a change of life, a change of scenery. He wanted to sow wild oats. But for Jacob to do all that, he had to create an issue. 
He had to create a problem. He had to be a deceiver. He had to get things done a certain way. It says that he created his own, I'm saying through this, he created his own problems through deceit and self-centeredness. He was. And you know, what happens is, regardless of what we think, many times we find ourselves being self-centered. It's easy for us to be self-centered. Truly, truly is. So many times I can find myself being self-centered. Even though I feel that I, I'm a giving and a loving person, I really, really am. But it's something that you fight as a human. And so we know that's what Jacob was doing. He created a lot of destruction in his life. A lot. And so what I could do is ask you right now, do you know people in your life that have created unbelievable hazards in their life, totally destroying their lives? There are a lot of people today who would rather continue in their dysfunction lifestyle, which is not working for them at all, than to turn their lives over to God. Amen? A lot of people. Ever been there? I'm sure many times. My wife wanted to say, how's it working for you? I'm sure there's times Bruce would just want to say, looks like it's working really good for you there, Lynn. I'm sure there's times that you want to say that to somebody in your life. All that dysfunction, all that craziness, everything that's going on over here. Really? You like that? How's it working for you? They'd like for God to help with some of their problems. But they have no intention of surrendering their lives to God. Help me here, but over here, mm, I'm not going to surrender. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. Maybe I have areas of my life that's that way. Maybe you have areas of your life that's that way. There are a lot of people that's caught up in a web of self-destruction. A web of self-destruction. But they'd rather live in the destruction and with their choices that's caused their lives to be totally out of control. Totally, totally out of control. I think a lot of times of the young people that have been raised in church and they love the Lord and they've been through youth ministry and then they're off to college. And then all of a sudden what happens is everything that we're talking, the decision making, everything has to be them. Everything. Choices are laid before them day in and day out, night in and night out. How are you going to choose? You choose life, you choose death. I'm sure I don't have to give any illustrations of people who are living destructive lives and living in dysfunction. Um, because I'm sure each of you have somebody that you could be even thinking about. And then many times we'll leave a service and I'll say, you know, I, I was thinking of, and you go, it's like, no, oh, God was thinking of you. Put that right in your chest. God's thinking of you. 
Sometimes there's those who manage to break the cycle, not on their own. It's just what happens is either someone's shown them a way, shown them the way, or along the way, they found someone that knew the way home. This article, entitled The Gem of the Soul, The Gem of the Soul. Pastor makes a joke a lot of times about working out. Most of you know he'll say that. Because the Bible does say that exercise profit little, okay? But there is a part of that that, you know, regardless of what we think, exercise and being physically fit will give you a quality of life that you may not have if you don't do that, okay? I mean, it just works that way. But when I come across this, the gem of the soul, I thought, hmm, interesting. In a recent article entitled, The Gem of the Soul, it's on citizenlink.com, there's a quote from someone who says, and I like this quote, no matter what, you can overcome your past. With help, if you look to God, you can overcome your past and be reborn. I'd say reborn means born again, is what that says. However, when I was reading this, it says, but this, it was not a preacher who quoted this. Rather, it was someone you might not expect. You ready for this? It was Sylvester Stallone, also known as Rocky. Stuart Shepard tells the story of the turnaround in Stallone's life. You might be like me when I was reading this, going, really? Read on. I had to. He tells how Stallone surprised the entertainment world by resurrecting his iconic movie hero, Rocky Balboa, for one last film. And while he was traveling and promoting the film, he told how his faith in Jesus Christ and his renewed commitment to the Christian faith was instrumental in his decision to make the final movie. The article quotes Stallone as saying, I was raised, ready? In a Catholic home, a Christian home. And I went to Catholic schools and I was taught the faith and went as far as I could with it until one day, you know, I got out in the so called real world and I was presented with temptation. I kind of lost my way and made a lot of bad choices. The article quotes, no joke said all the subscribers to People Magazine. But Stallone added, he's been going through a change in his life. He's realized that he was wrong to place his career and fame ahead of his family. The more I go to church, he said, and the more I turn myself over to the process of believing in Jesus and listening to his word and having him guide my hand, I feel as though the pressure is off of me now. And admitting that the analogy might be a little uh, pedestrian, he made a correlation between physical and spiritual fitness. He said, you need to have the expertise and the guidance of someone else. You cannot train yourself, he said. 
I feel the same way about Christianity and about what the church is. The church is the gem of the soul. Stallone says that he has, has, that he has had his own personal crisis of faith. Now, I read that. I don't have to give up on Rocky. I mean, if, if, he, if he's doing what he's saying he's doing, that he's listening to the word, reading the word, that he's listening to Jesus' guidance, guess what? I once was Catholic. Bruce was once Catholic. Teresa was once Catholic. Maybe some of you are out there were once Catholic. Patrick? Yes. So when I read it, I'm going, mm, mm, mm. you know, because we're, we're taught all those, mm, that what, uh, come on. You know where I get some of that from, right? It's true. I'm thinking, what? But it sounds to me like Stallone is trying to do what is right. That third thing that I said earlier, we have to decide what is important. So what's happening there, he's making a decision. He's deciding on what is important. There are still times when God comes through unexpectedly, okay, in our lives. Stallone's probably thinking that now. Because I'm sure he wasn't looking for that. As he shared that, doc, that, that the quote in that story. It may be in our sleep when God shows up. It may be when we are at least uh, thinking about it. It may be in church. Or it may even be someplace that we shouldn't be. But at some point in time, God will show up. It may come when we need him the most, or when we, when we feel we don't need him at all, or it may be in a time of crisis and depression, or it may even be a time of great blessing and joy. I think that many times we have to, why it is that we have to reach rock bottom before we want to look up, but are, there are those that, that, See God in the joy and the blessings also. But a lot of times, depression, torment, fear, all of that will drive you to the point of looking for God, and then God shows up. God is the God of the unexpected, and he can come knocking on your door at any time. When you do, least expect it. He may even come when you least want to hear from him. What is it that makes it difficult for us to find our way back home? Not everyone's a rebel. So number two, some people, like the man on the postcard, they're lost and don't know how to get back home. They're lost and don't know how to go back home. Praying hands. He wants to know how to get back to the Father. Get right with God. So
So the second thing is we don't know the way. A lot of times people don't know the way. And we have the ability to show them the way. We have the ability to talk to them. We have the ability to lead them to the Lord. And I was mentioning to someone, I was mentioning to Teresa the other day about uh, a young lady that's working for us. And, you know, what happens is you get great hopes because you hear the word Christian and you hear, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, yes, what we have here is just modern day Christian. But maybe she's walking in the depth of Christianity that she knows. And so it's only a matter of time before I start talking and sharing and being an example. So, as I said, the second thing is they don't know the way. People don't know the way. When we were talking about Jacob, Jacob is a man who needed to find his way to God. But he did not seem to know how to get there. If you would read the story of Jacob and Esau over and over and over, you'll find that his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham both had life-altering encounters with God. But nothing had happened to Jacob at that time. Nothing. All he had to go on were the stories. Remember earlier I said, unless it was, that was my father. That wasn't me. That was all the people around him. That wasn't me. I was just kind of reading the story. I was telling the story. I wasn't living it. And so it's the same with Jacob. It was just a story, okay? Uh, that's, That's what he got. There were stories of what happened to his father and his grandfather. Life had been pretty good for Jacob. And you know, that happens many times with young people. They're born into a a loving Christian family, and what happens is life is good. And then what happens is that the college scene comes on, or they just look and say, and they that rebellious heart, I don't want this. I don't want Christianity. I don't want to live like this. And they go their separate way. They get lost, and then sometimes it's a fight to get back, to get back home. And many times when a young person does that, they don't know how to get back home. Because sometimes they feel that they're not wanted. Sometimes they feel the the humility. We know in Scripture, God talks about conviction. But. When you're out there, they're not looking at it as conviction. They're looking at it as condemnation. We're condemning. Basically, Jacob didn't have a lot of need for God. We never read about any conversions about God or or with him. We never read about him worshiping, nor any encounters with God in all of his life up until he meets God at Bethel. But Jacob is desperately in need of God now. He has swindled his brother out of his birthright, out of his inheritance, and the conflict between him and his brother has escalated the place where he has uh, fear in losing his life. 
actually, Esau said, I want to slay him. Slay him. Now, okay, if you read that and you get the picture of what Esau looked like, he basically looked like a bear with a knife. And I don't think he's talking about when he uses the word slay. I mean, I think he's talking about slaying, okay? What was Esau? He was, he was a hunter. He was a brute, right? So that's, he said, I want to slay him. So <laughs> Jacob is in no need of God until he's fearing and running for his life. And then all of a sudden, he's interested in God. He swindled his brother out of his birthright, out of the inheritance. The conflict was getting uglier, and his brother has escalated the place where he said, I'm going to slay you. But Jacob wants to go home to God, but he doesn't know how to get there. So when we don't know how to get to God, guess what? God's going to come to us. He does. God will come to us. God will find you. Word of God says that he never leaves you or forsakes you. He will find you. Jacob's running from his brother and all the problems. Problems, guess what? That he created, that he stirred up, that he did. Finally, he's on the run. The night comes, he falls asleep. There's a rock for a pillow under his head, and above the heavens open up. As he is asleep, God reveals himself to Jacob. In his dream, there is what appears to be a large ladder or a staircase of light, the top of which reaches to heaven and the very throne of God. God reveals himself and prom- promises Jacob that he will inherit the promises which God had made to his father and to his father before him. He didn't know the way. And God reveals himself to Jacob and just reveals everything. The Lord repeats those promises to him personally saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis. 28, 13 through 15. Jacob called that place Bethel, which in Hebrew means house of God. House of God. This special place seems to him to be the very dwelling place of the Lord. Jacob met God there. That's where he met God. He wasn't expecting to meet God there. He wasn't even thinking of God. It was purely by grace. It was because God found him god found him meeting god was probably the last thing on his mind he didn't even want to meet god he was only thinking of getting away from his brother his mind was full of thoughts about where he's going and what was ahead of him because see humanly what's what we're thinking about how are we going to get out of this mess this mess that we created but god on the other hand has a bigger and better plan 
than us. But then again, what happens is, I said earlier, many times God's speaking to us and we're not hearing. Either because we don't want to or we're not listening to the voice of God. We just, again, are being rebellious. But God broke into Jacob's self-absorbed life in a dramatic way. God opened up his world even when Jacob closed his world to God. He, God opened his world to Jacob. Think about that. It's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable because many of us don't want anything to do with God. But God's still opening up the heavens. He's still drawing us. He's still drawing your loved ones. He's still drawing your family members. This whole incident tells us something very important about God. In Isaiah 65, 1, it says, I reveal myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, here am I. Prior to me giving my life to the Lord, God did unbelievable things to try to get my attention. Unbelievable things. Over and over. Year after year. Prior to, to getting saved. The biggest one. I've shared this story. And it's going to be quick. Was when I was getting on a plane one day. And I'm telling you. Prior to getting on the plane. The young lady. And okay. So you know this. That looking at the young lady. I was not looking at the young lady. Okay. In a rude, lewd uh, manner. I was looking, okay, because I do hair, I was looking at her hair. She had all this hair going, jeez, okay? And, but there was something weird about this girl. The weirdness was like she was shining, okay? Like there was this light all around her, and I'm thinking, in my heart, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to be sitting by, by her, and I was saying, I better not be sitting by her. If I sit by her, this is going to be weird. This is not going to be good. So I even wait to get on a plane. If anyone, I mean, the way I was, uh, I showed up like running there. And like I was the last one on, but it just so happened that it was delayed. So I still let everybody get on. And I'm, mm, mm, wouldn't you know, mm, she's sitting by the window i'm thinking oh sit by her and i sat by her and it wasn't long after that we're fastening up i look over and she's got this big thick thing and she's turning the pages and she's reading the holy bible and it was all marked up so i knew she was one of them okay gosh i'm thinking why me Then she said, where are you going? And she was actually, what was weird, she was going to Camp Lejeune, which I didn't know around that area, which I didn't even know about that then. But she was going to visit her boyfriend, who was in the Marines. Uh, and she had family there. And the list went on and on. And where are you going? Oh, I'm going to do a hair show and yada, yada, yada. And so then we started talking about hair. And, then, and we were just talking about Kenra products. And she said, 
So needless to say, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. So then she asked me if I was a Christian. Of course, I said, yeah, I'm Catholic. Okay. Long story short, I know now that God planted her there, okay? Um, and that all these things he just kept doing over and over and over. So God will find you wherever you are. He will find you wherever you are. God is full of surprises. When you don't expect him, he's going to show up. God can interrupt our self-centered lives in the most amazing ways, even if you're not wanting him to hear from you or wanting to hear from him. Self-centered lives. The third thing, what, does it make it, what is it that makes it difficult for us to find our way home? It's because we have to decide what is important. It's interesting that Jacob's journey back to God involved a journey back to the people he had wronged in his life. His brother. Jacob's life involves a trail of disastrous decisions and broken relationships. Before he returns again to Bethel, he must face Esau. Before he meets God, he meets his brother. In the process of healing our relationship with God, our broken relationships with others must be faced. <laughs> becoming right with God involves becoming right with others. But in order to do that, you, must have, to, you have to get over the hurt or the pain that you feel that someone's caused you. You have to forgive the past. Forgive the past. You, you have to forget about who's right and who's wrong. It begins when you begin to want to have a healing in those relationships more than you want to be right. Listen to that. A healing in a relationship more than you want to be right. Now, I find this really interesting because some people think, some people think, excuse me, some people think, just because that you're praying for all of that and you're letting that take place and happen, that all of a sudden you're going to be best buds again. No. It's not what that's saying. It doesn't mean you, oh, you're back in my life again. No. But it means that you make it right, that you forgive, and you get past that hurt and that pain. But it doesn't mean that you let them back in your life again. And I use that example in my own personal life with my own personal family members. Okay? I love them. I have forgiven them. I'm not holding odd against them. But I'm not saying, come on over and let's have coffee tomorrow morning. Or, hey, spend the night. We'll get up in the morning and we'll have coffee. I'll fix your breakfast. I'm not doing that. So, in that, it's also a way back to God. You pray for that healing and work toward it. It may or may not be possible for there to be a healing, but you have to want it to be there. You have to want it to be there. There's people who are hindering their lives because they have bitterness in their heart. You can't hold that bitterness. Romans 12, 17-19 do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Do not take revenge. When Jacob sent for Esau and heard that he was not only coming, but bringing 400 men with him, he thought he might be attacked and killed. Rightful thinking. He thought it was over with for him. I'm doomed. I mean, my brother said he wanted to slay me. He had to come to the place where he decided what was important in his life, and then it was just Jacob, and it was God. He made a decision to send a gift, a peace offering to Esau. He sent him hundreds of animals, goats, sheep, camels, cows, donkeys. Next, he sent all the people with him in groups over the the river to meet Esau. The last people he sent were his wives and children, and he sent over all of his possessions. Again, he had to come to a place where he decided what was important in his life, and then it was just Jacob and God. And Scripture goes on to say that he wrestled with God all night. There's an interesting and rather surprising verse in this description of Jacob's fight with God. It says in Genesis 32, 25, that God was not able to overpower Jacob. What? I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that, like, what do you mean? Pretty amazing. How is it that God cannot overpower a mere man or a human? Because there's a limit God has set upon himself. If you're fighting God, he's not going to overpower you. Think about that. If you're fighting the things of God, if you're fighting God, he's not going to overpower you. He's not going to take you out to make you submit to him. He's not going to crush you and take away your will. We've been given a free will. Your friends, your family, your loved ones, they've been given that free will. It must be your decision alone. You have to decide what's really important in your life. Another interesting thing about the struggle with God is that when it becomes daybreak, God asks Jacob to let him go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is saying to God, no, I'm not letting you go, God. And I'm not letting you go until what? Until you bless me, God. We know that the story goes on or the scripture goes on to say that God blesses him, gives him a new name. And Jacob says, I saw God face to face. And my life was spared. What does scripture say? I, think, I believe there's a scripture that says, no man has seen God. And what? And lived. And Jacob is saying here, that I've seen God face to face and my life was spared. <laughs> now, the way to struggle with God is holding on until you get the blessing of God. We don't want to hold on. I 
like American Ninja Warrior, okay? I love to watch that. And I was watching like night after night, week after week of this. And I'm telling you, those guys are just to the point of when they get up there and their fingertips, you know, and they've conditioned and they're just shaking and they're trying to get where they're going. And you know, inside them, oh. And then, boom, they collapse and they fall and they don't make it. I can't even imagine wrestling with God all night and then saying, I'm not letting you go, God, until you bless me. And there's things that we hold on to in our lives, but we can't hold on to the one who's going to give us the blessing and the promise of God. Think about that. What we need to do is keep holding on to faith and the prayer until the blessing comes. And you know, when the blessing comes, <laughs> the blessing may not look or be what you expected. We're live, we live that right now. Why isn't what I expected? I told you that one night preaching. Because my expectation was God to move in a way I would have conjured it up in my mind. But no, we still have the blessing of God. Genesis 32.10 says, To see your face is like seeing the face of God. Whose face was he looking at? His brother's face. And he said, it's like seeing the face of God. Reconciliation came when Jacob saw God in his brother. He had seen God twice, once when he wrestled with him, and the second time when he saw him in his brother. When he was united with God, he was reunited, reunited with his brother. And when he was reunited with his brother, he was re reunited with God. It's not making that up. It's scripture. It's what happened. That's what took place. I'm going to go ahead and close. So if you have a song, here's what I want to say to you. God's interested in you. He's interested in your family. He's interested in your children. He's interested in your life. He's interested in everything about you. He's looking over you. He's looking out for you. He's looking for you. He's looking for a way he can come into your life and lead you to the promises of God and the blessings of God. And when I say promises and blessings of God, I'm not talking about prosperity. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about even the ability to live a godly life to be an example to those that are without Christ. To make it in a crazy world from day to day. God made you with his own hands. He longs for you. 
He's looking for a way for the two of you to meet, for the two of you to commune. There's so much that he wants to do for you, for your family, for those that you love. Bottom line is, if you'll only let him. Someone in here may be running like Jacob. You might be running from your family, from your problems, finances, situations. You might even be running from God. Your life might be in an upheaval. It might be crazy. You might be in a broken relationship right now as there were broken relationships with Jacob. It might be that you're heading into a new job, an uncertain future, something they're not used to, unknown waters. I want you to know that tonight, tomorrow, at home tonight, as we close this service, that God can meet you in any of these circumstances, any of these situations, Anything that's going on in your life, God wants to meet you. He wants to know you. He doesn't want to. He does not know want to want to know about you. He wants to know you. Earlier, I told you that I knew about my father's salvation. I knew about it. I didn't experience it. I wasn't saved yet. I didn't know. It was him that took his last breath and went on to be with Jesus. There's a scripture that says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So as the lights go down and the music goes on, I'm asking you to think about where you're at. Think about the three things that I talked about. The heart. Not knowing the way. And deciding what's important in your life. Let God meet you at this altar tonight.